Am I on? Am I on? Yeah, awesome. Hey, thank you again, Bob, for letting me come. I always love to come and uh, speak at Wellspring because uh, Bob and so many people and really all of you are just really dear and precious to my heart. So it's a pleasure to be here. And congratulations is in order. Ten years, right? Last week. I mean, that is awesome. You know, the measure of a church is not in its beginnings, but in, in its uh, continuance. And 10 years of making disciples and impacting this community is something to really celebrate, and that is awesome. So congratulations. Here's to 10 more and beyond, right? <laughs> and uh, that, that is awesome. And I'm also really pri- privileged to jump into the middle of this series. I guess it's not the middle. It's kind of the beginning of uh, Jesus in Genesis or the gospel in Genesis. And Bob told me that uh, uh, my turn was going to be to cover the story of the Tower of Babel. I'm like, cool, I know that story. It's pretty familiar. At first, I'm like, whoa, I, uh, I don't know what, right off the bat, didn't jump out, like what part of the Gospels in the Tower of Babel or where do you see Jesus in that? But when I started diving in, I even told Bob that at one point. I'm like, man, Bob, you, you got to help me out. And he gave me a couple of things. But as I really started getting into it, it was really amazing Um, once again, how God shows that the Bible is one story, and it is all about Jesus, Uh, and it's amazing. So uh, if you could put up the the, uh, Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, that's the story of the Tower of Babel, and just follow along with me in your Bibles. I don't know what page it is in the Pew Bibles, but uh, uh, Genesis is the first book, and then it's the 11th chapter in there, so... Uh, but it's up here too. So now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen or tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed or scattered over the face of the earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will propose to do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed or scattered them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off the building of the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. So a little context and history about this little story. I mean, it's a short story of nine verses, and it it falls between like the epic tale of Noah, and then the epic, that, that wraps up in chapter nine of Genesis, and then the epic tale of Abraham, which starts, which kicks off in chapter 12. And then in between there is, is chapter 10 and 11. And 10 and 11 consists mostly of genealogies that kind of track the generations between Noah and Abraham. And then right in the middle of those genealogies, and by the way, those genealogies kind of, they, they serve the same purpose as uh, like a montage sequence in a Hollywood movie. You know, like, like when Simba, you know, grew from a cub to a, an adult lion uh, while he's saying Hakuna Matata with uh, 
Timon and Pumbaa, is that right? Right? You know, it's like it's, it, it serves to kind of telescope or to, to shorten uh, a long period of time, and it keeps the story moving. And so between there, there's a long period of time, a lot of generations, and, 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 and 10 and 11 start listing all these generations, you know, who begat who and who begat who and all the sons of Noah. But then like right in the middle, literally in the middle, it was almost like a squirrel moment in the Bible, you know, like they're talking, oh, squirrel, you know, uh, from Up. I'm quoting all the Disney movies. I don't know what that's about, but, <laughs> you know, or, or kind of like, oh, by the way, in, in here somewhere this happened. But, uh, and, and it's kind of interesting when you read that. It's just kind of stuck, stuck in there, and they, they do the genealogy, and they, oh, by the way, this story, and then they do more genealogy to link it. But uh, if we remember what Bob said when he introduced this series is that, uh, you know, the Bible is uh, one continuous story, a story of man's sin and God's redemption, and that God has been working on man's redemption and reconciliation from the very beginning. And so when you remember that, you realize that this thing is tucked in here for a reason. It's not an oh, by the way, it's not a, an aside, it's, not, it's, it's important. And, it, and it's significant because in just these nine verses, the Bible really holds up a mirror to all of us. It gives us a real good look at the condition of our hearts. And it's a condition that started in Genesis chapter 3. I think, Bob, did you cover that? The fall, right? And that same condition of the human heart persists in all of us to this day. And this little story, again, reminds us that God has been working on a redemption from the very beginning. And it also foreshadows God's ultimate solution. It accurately, this little story accurately depicts the tragic tendency of people to seek our security and our identity in things other than God. It shows how we stubbornly try to get to God going our own way on our own terms and by our own strength and with our own intellect. And it also shows in a tragic way the folly and futility of seeking these things apart from God and his plan. So the first three verses, it said the whole earth had one language, right? And and they had multiplied and they had The population had grown, and they moved east to Shinar, which was a a great plain, like a desert, right? The area would be called Babel after this event, later Babylon, and now it's generally the region of like Iraq, a desert. And they said to one another, let's make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And so not only had the population grown, but like technology you know, they had advanced technologically and as a society during this time. And so they, they, made, uh, they, made, they started making bricks instead of using stone to build. And, you know, people are, are amazing. You know, we're amazing people. Maybe not me specifically, but as a, as a whole, people are really incredible, right? Creative, intelligent, capable of doing really incredible things. You know, and previously, the descendants of Noah were dependent upon the availability of stone like to build, like a God-created resource. But now, and, and 
previously when they had to depend upon a God-created resource to make, to build their cities, right? They were dependent, they, they could only build like where there was a supply of stone. And they were limited how much they could build by how much stone was there. But they had advanced and their technology had advanced and they learned how to make bricks. And now they could build a city in the middle of a desert. All they needed was dirt and clay and sand and they'd mix it up and heat it in an oven and, and it would come out and they're like, we can make our own stone. So now they're not living it anymore. And, and, and they, were, they made tar. They, they invented tar, which kind of held the, held the stones together. And so now they weren't limited anymore by, by a God-created resource. They could kind of make their own. And they had tar so they could make their cities bigger and taller. You know, technology is amazing. And, and uh, at its best, right, it, it really reflects the image of God in us. Creativity, problem-solving, ingenuity. The quest to get better, right? And uh, I just think even in my lifetime, I'm 52. Um, I'm not sure if I'm at the end of the boomers or at the beginning of Gen X. I don't know what it is. But, but in my lifetime, I mean, it's just incredible how technology has advanced, right? I mean, when I was young, the idea of a computer in your house was like insane. They were as big as a house. And now we have multiple computers, personal computers that we carry around with us. I mean, we have old computers in a drawer somewhere we don't even know what to do with, you know, because we got a better model. And now we carry, phone, you know, computers around in our phones and we can do practically anything, you know. We have the technology that somebody could film me, you know, talking this morning and live stream it on Periscope or something and somebody could be sitting on a beach in Cabo San Lucas and listen to me talk in real time. I mean, that's unbelievable to me when I think about it, Right? I mean, what a testament to, to how intelligent and smart and creative man can be, you know? And that really is the, the image of God in us, because God is creative and, and, and like that. But, but the problem with technology and, and the danger of it is that each time there's an advancement, man has a tendency to kind of want to elbow God out, you know? And we start to believe that we can, mankind and, and, his, and his intelligence and creativity can kind of start to solve all the great problems and the, and the great issues and, and on their own, without God. And so they were there and they're like, man, you know, we used to have to have stone, but now we can make our own stone and we can just build a city. And they started to kind of edge God out. Of the picture. And we start to believe again that the answers to life's hardest and deepest questions can be advanced, be solved by man apart from God. We begin to, we don't think, we think we don't need him as much. This is true. This was true for the people who started to build that city and that tower. It's true for us today. It's true on a macro level as a society that we think that, you know, we can kind of elbow God out of the picture that we don't need him quite as much. It's true in a personal level, too, on a micro level. The tendency of our heart is to start to think, maybe we can do this on our own. Maybe we don't need God that much. And that brings us to 
verse 4. If you kind of isolate that in that next slide. So the people had made bricks. They're out in the desert. They're like, we can build a city. So they looked around. They said, let us build a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And there's the mirror. This little story puts up right in front of us. And what that reveals to us are three tragic tendencies of the human heart. In that one little verse, three tragic tendencies of the human heart. We're going to go over those right now. The first tragic tendency of the human heart is found in the very first part of that. When they said, let us build a city and a tower with its top in heaven. And the tragic tendency of our human heart is that we tend to want to try to find our own way to God. We have a tendency to try to find our own way to God. On our own terms, in our own time, with our own strength. You know, it's really the same story that uh, I guess Bob preached about when he talked about Genesis 3. You know, that temptation to believe that we can achieve equality with God on our own terms. Not God's terms, but our own terms, right? The The serpent tempted Eve and said, did God really tell you you can't eat from that tree? And she said, yeah, he told us that. He's like, do you know why? Because if you eat of that, you'll gain knowledge that he has. You'll be equal to him. And that struck the te- that tendency in her, that, that tragic tendency in her heart to go, I want that. I want to get there. And it's a result of the fall for us, and it caused the fall for us. It's human nature to do this. It's not our redeemed nature in Christ, but our fleshly nature. The tendency of the human heart to try to find our own way to God, trying to obtain equality with God. But just like the story of Adam and Eve and the story of Babel, our efforts to achieve equality with God or to find a way to Him on our own terms will inevitably end in shame and insecurity like Adam and Eve or confusion and disunity like Babel. Now, here's where we start to see some foreshadowing of Jesus in this story and a foreshadowing of God's plan for redemption and a foreshadowing of our need for salvation, right? And I I think of Paul, if you you turn to Philippians chapter 2, or that that verse, put it up there for me. It's Philippians 2. And I think Paul might have been thinking about Babel and this tragic tendency of the human heart when he uh, started to describe Jesus in Philippians 2. He said, have this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was born in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, grasping for equality with God on our own terms gets us nowhere because God has already given us the solution. By sending the one who is already equal to God, to provide the way to God. Jesus said it himself, John 14, 1 through 7. He says, um, uh, I'll start where, where is that? It's up there, I think. Thomas, Jesus had been talking about how he's going to go to heaven and prepare a place for them, and the Father has a place, and Jesus was going to go ahead of them and prepare a place. And, and Thomas said to him, uh, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
You see, it's not about us trying to get to God. It's about God coming to us. There's only one way to God, and that is through Jesus, the one who already has equality with God. And he humbled himself. He died on a cross to provide for us the way to him. The people who started to build the tower thought that they could get there on their own. Now, the second tragic tendency of the human heart found in, in uh, chapter, or that verse 4. If you can go back there, too, that'd be awesome. Thank you. I'm going to make him do his, earn his paycheck this morning, jumping around. But it's in the very next statement. They said, you know, the first one was what? It's, they said, uh, let us build a city and tower with its top in heaven, and let us make a name for ourselves. The second tragic tendency of the human heart is trying to find our identity apart from God. Trying to find our identity in anything other than Christ will inevitably lead us to heartache and confusion. Because outside of Jesus, outside of God, no matter what you place your identity in, no matter where you try to find your worth or your value as a person, it'll eventually come up short, won't it? Think about the executive whose identity is in her career and then has her whole world shattered when she gets laid off. A mom who finds her value in her children seems to, be, to lose her purpose when her children move away for college. The pastor whose identity rests in his ability to be a leader loses confidence when some of his people betray him. The young man who wraps his whole world around the girl he loves is shattered when she leaves him for somebody else. The athlete spent his whole life working on his fastball finds himself directionless when his shoulder blows out and his playing days are over. You go on and on and on. You know, the man who finds his, his value and his health and his vitality and feels strong and is crushed when he gets a call from the doctor and says it's cancer. You see, when we find our identity and our value or our worth in money, possessions, power, intelligence, career, beauty, or anything else other than God, we'll eventually find ourselves disappointed when the money runs out, when the people stop listening, when our brains begin to work slower, when the wrinkles and the gray hair set in, when our body betrays us with disease or illness. The only place we can find our worth where we can make a name for ourselves and find our value that will never disappoint us in the end is in God. Paul said it well in Philippians 3, verses 3 through 8. I'm going to jump in kind of the middle of this one. He says, If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul understood where his value, where his worth, where his identity really was as a person. And it's in Christ alone. So that was the second tragic tendency of the human heart. First was trying to find our way to God on our own terms, with our own strength, with our own ability. Second is trying to find our identity or our worth or our value 
in something other than God. And the third one is the very next phrase where they say, let's build a city and a tower that reaches to the, at the top that reaches to the heaven. Let's make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The third tragic tendency of the human heart is trying to find our security in something other than God. So not only were the people trying to find their identity in the tower, to find their own way to God, they were also trying to find security in the tower. They were hoping that the tower would take care of the fear they had about being separated and dispersed across the earth. Right? If they split up, they felt they'd become vulnerable and they might perish. Their strength in numbers, they said. And the tower can kind of serve as a rallying point. If we just kind of stayed around this tower and in this city, we'd be safe. Sounds great. The only problem is that was in direct violation of what God had told them to do. If you go back to Genesis 9-1, I don't think I have it up here, but you can turn back just a couple of chapters. This is after the flood when God is reestablishing things with Noah and his family. He, he, he said to Noah, and he said, and this is the verse, nine, Genesis 9, chapter 1, And God blessed Noah and all his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That word fill the earth means disperse, spread out, and fill the earth. So they were supposed to spread out and fill the earth, to disperse, to be separated. But instead of being obedient and trusting God that he would protect them, they looked around and they saw that the world was a scary place. And they gave in to the fear. They convinced themselves that they could build a city and a tower and that would keep them secure. And that there was no need to obey, God, obey or trust God for protection because they could protect themselves. You know, anytime we let fear prevail over faith or we let fear keep us from obedience and trusting in God, it's going to backfire. And ironically, oftentimes, it kind of brings about the very thing we're afraid of. When we give in to fear and we don't trust him. And just like finding, trying to find our identity in anything other than Christ will lead to confusion and chaos, so will trying to find our security in anything else but him. Putting our security, seeking peace in things other than Christ will eventually fail. They'll come up short. So those three tragic tendencies of the human heart, the tendency of our hearts to try to do it on our own, to find our way to God in our own strength, to edge him out, to feel like we don't need him, to try to find our identity or our worth or our value or what, what gives us a name, what gives us the, the reason to live in, in, in things other than God is a tragic tendency of the human heart. And trying to find our security and to deal with our fears and to try to find safety outside of Christ, outside of God, is a tragic tendency of the human heart. You know, I, I, I do counseling during the week, and I, 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 uh, I meet with people, and, and as I was studying this, I realized, you know, when you boil it down, so much of the pain and the, the confusion and the hurt that I deal with people during the week, if you boil it down to its core, the root of it are these three tendencies of the human heart. 
And then I get honest and I go, and I look at the pain and the hurt and the confusion I've felt in my own life, in my own walk in Christ. It kind of boils down to somewhere along the line, I felt like I could do it on my own. I started looking for other things to give me value and worth. I started looking for things other than God to give me security and to take care of my fear. So there the people were. In their brokenness and sin, they had began to edge God out of the picture. They sought to obtain equality with God. And they sought to find their own way to heaven. They tried to find their identity and their security in their city and their tower instead of in God. And in their end, their plan failed. If you can go back to the, the whole, the whole uh, story from Genesis 11. And in the end, their plan failed because God came down and he confused their language. And this is one of those passages that... Uh, you know, some of these ancient texts, it's like, I, I, it's kind of wild. It's like God's kind of ta- having a conversation with himself. You know, let us go down and let us confuse their speech. And, you know, he's coming down. It's kind of like, uh, you know, Job, that, that interesting discourse between Job, God and Satan about, you know, Job. And, and I, don't, I don't understand it all or how it works. But, but the point is, God, God intervened and he confused and uh, their language, and it caused the division and the confusion. And the city was literally left half built. Because these people who at once could understand each other all of a sudden couldn't. And chaos reigned, and they left the city and the tower half built. And it stood as a poignant reminder of the folly of man grasping for equality with God. And from the confusion of all that, And from the confusion of the tongues, the city received its name, Babel. And this event is so much more than just an explanation of the origin of the languages of the earth. I think as a kid, you know, hearing this story, that's kind of where it ended, you know. And as I kind of mentioned it to people this week, they're like, oh, you're going to talk about the the origin of the different languages of the world. And I kind of always thought that that's kind of what it was about, but it's really not about that at all. It's about so much more. It's a word picture describing those tragic tendencies of the human heart, describing the folly of man seeking his own way on his own terms and his own time. And that folly was demonstrated by the confusion of the languages. All these people who shared one language and the same words, like that, suddenly unable to understand one another. It kind of reminds me of another story later in Acts. After Jesus had been crucified on the cross, he rose again. And he appeared to the disciples and he'd been teaching them. But then, then, before, then, then he finally was ascended to heaven for the last time. But before he went, he said, I'm going to send a helper to you. It's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's going to come and empower you and give you strength. And it's going to usher in the kingdom of heaven and carry on my work. And you turn to the second chapter of Acts. I think I have that up there. And the disciples are in Jerusalem kind of waiting for this to happen. And we'll pick up the story there. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And in divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of them of how, how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both the Jews and the proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. They're filled with booze. They're drunk. You know, the ones who mocked didn't recall the lessons learned at Babel. But those who were paying attention that day, those who knew the ancient story of the city and the tower and the confusion of the languages, understood that the repeat of those events of Babel only this time, in opposite, was an unmistakable sign that Jesus was the one who could undo what was done. That he was the antidote. That he was the answer to the tragic tendencies of the human heart. They would have realized that Jesus is the only one who we can find security in, who we can find our identity in. He was the way to God. Those there witnessing that, who were aware, who understood, they knew that through Jesus, sin and its consequences is overcome and extinguished by the power of grace. And that's what the story of the Tower of Babel is all about. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I, uh, I love the story of Jesus found throughout all of Scripture. I love that the Old Testament and the New Testament are not two separate books that are just kind of randomly put together. I love that it's not a case of you trying, you know, plan A in the Old Testament, and oh, that didn't work, let's try plan B in the New Testament. It's not, that's not what it is, God. It's one continuous story of man's sin and your plan of redemption, all leading and pointing towards Jesus. How amazing is that, God? I pray that you would continue to just unfold that, that unbelievable truth to each of us. God, and I pray that we would realize that you are the answer to these tragic tendencies of our heart, to try to edge you out and try to do it on our own, to try to find our own way on our own terms. God, when we try to find our identity, our worth, our value, our purpose in anything other than you, God, when we try to find our security in things other than you, God, 
And so many of those things are not bad. Family, career, health, ability, those are not bad things, God. But when we, tr- when we cross the line and we begin to look to those things and not to you for our value, that's when confusion and hurt set in. Thank you, Jesus, that you came to undo what was done. That our sin divides us, but you bring us together. And the beautiful symbolism of that we find in Scripture. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.